Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies... 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at the Sawa. Gambia's new president, Adama Barrow, is set to return home today. Al-Shabaab attack kills at least 28 people in Mogadishu and concerns over increasing human rights violations in the DRC. In economics news, African wealth funds seek foreign partners to fix infrastructure gap. And in sports news, Sri Lanka stunned South Africa to bag the T20 cricket series. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. President Adama Baro has indicated he will return to the Gambia on Thursday. Head of the UN Office for West Africa and the Sahel, Mohamed Ibn Chimbas, is due to travel with a new leader from Senegal, where he has been staying due to security concerns. Baro's inauguration ceremony was held in Senegal due to the crisis generated by former Gambian president Yaya Jemais' refusal to cede power after losing elections held in December. United Nations spokesperson Stefan Dujaric. Mr. Chambas indicated that his office will spare no effort in supporting stability and nation-building in the Gambia. He will continue to promote a smooth and peaceful transition of power in the country and further advocate for national unity and reconciliation. The UN Office for West Africa has already deployed staff to the Gambia to assist the government in ensuring a smooth transfer from the previous administration to the new authorities. And as uh, you will have seen, President Barrow is scheduled to return to the Gambia tomorrow, and Mr. Chambas is expected to accompany him on his trip home from Senegal. The death toll in the coordinated gun and bomb attacks carried out by Al-Shabaab at a popular hotel in Somalia's capital, Mogadishu, has risen to 28, leaving dozens more wounded. Attackers on Wednesday morning rammed an explosive-packed car into the gate of the Deya Hotel and then stormed inside, exchanging gunfire with security guards. A second car bomb blast went off after ambulances and journalists arrived at the scene. Authorities in Mali have been urged to swiftly investigate attacks against UN peacekeepers in the country and to bring the perpetrators to justice. That's the message from the United Nations Security Council, which has condemned in the strongest terms a deadly attack earlier this week, which killed a blue helmet from Chad and injured two of his colleagues. Council members underlined that attacks targeting peacekeepers may constitute war crimes under international law. They also reiterated their full support support for the UN mission in Mali Minusma and the French forces supporting it. The African Union Commission has paid tribute to South African ANC stalwart Winima Digizela Mandela, citing her selfless sacrifice in providing inspiration to others. Women from different African organizations have gathered in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to honor her and other continental heroines. Madigizela Mandela's absence did nothing to dampen the excitement. The outgoing AU Commission chairperson, Ngosazana Zuma, was also honored for the work she has done during her term of office, 
Despite being the first woman to lead the institution, she has also championed the adoption of Agenda 2063, which is a blueprint of Africa's developmental program over the next 50 years. Here's Lamini Zuma. I always say a leader is as good as his or her team because there is nothing you can do alone. And in these jobs, most of the work is delegated. So I must thank the commissioners, thank the directors, thank the people in my office, all the members of staff at the AU. And finally, President Donald Trump has ordered work to begin on building a wall across the Mexican border with the United States. Trump signed two executive orders directing the construction of the wall, boosting border patrol forces and increasing the number of immigration enforcement officers who carry out deportations. The orders also call for stripping sanctuary cities of federal grant funding and announced and sweeping new criteria that could make many more undocumented immigrants priorities for deportation. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.06 Central African Time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The UN Security Council has received a closed-door briefing from the Secretary-General's envoy to West Africa just days after passing a resolution to ensure the peaceful handover of power in the Gambia. Diplomats have heaped praise on the collective international effort that eventually saw the departure from the country of former President Yaya Jameh and the swearing-in of incumbent President Adama Barrow at his country's embassy in Senegal. He remains in Senegal over continued safety concerns. Sean Bryce Peace reports. Council met to discuss the situation on the ground, but diplomats here are arguably chuffed with their efforts in the eventual peaceful handover of power. UK Ambassador Matthew Rycroft. Very glad uh, that the outcome is that the former president has left office and the new president is ready to embark on his duties, uh, we hope, as soon as possible. I commend the uh, leadership of ECOWAS, the regional uh, organization for this excellent example of preventive diplomacy. You know, they, they got the world's attention on this issue, they corralled uh, a military force and that force did not need to, to do anything, uh, but the, uh, the moral authority of that regional leadership uh, demonstrated uh, how effective it can be. Former President Jamea left the country on Saturday for Equatorial Guinea, which is not a party to the International Criminal Court, while it remains unclear if the new authorities once installed in Banjul will pursue charges against Jamea over allegations that he raided state coffers before departing. French Ambassador François de Latre in conversation with SABC News. What we see in Gambia, let's always be cautious about the, the outcome, but frankly it is... Uh preventive diplomacy at its best, uh, not only with respect to the role of uh, the Security Council of the UN, but also with respect uh, to the uh, perfect partnership between the various international organizations, the UN, ECOWAS, and the African Union. So frankly, uh, let's wait a bit, but if it is the success story, we all hope 
it is. I think it's a good message about what the UN is uh, able to do, not alone, but again in partnership with other uh, international organizations. Ambassador, many people would argue that it wasn't diplomacy that worked in the Gambia, but it was the threat of military intervention. Is that now going to set a precedent for future crises that may develop, similar to what happened in the Gambia? That's a, that's a good point. I uh, believe diplomacy is always stronger when uh, there is when it is backed up by uh, a form of uh, pressure, and that's what also preventive diplomacy. Uh, can be uh, all about in certain, certain circumstances. ECOWAS troops remain in the Gambia securing the capital for the safe return of the president expected sometime later this week. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. A United Nations probe states that there has been a dramatic increase in human rights violations in the Democratic Republic of Congo in the past year. The United Nations Joint Human Rights Office documented over 5,000 violations committed across the country. Close to 64% of the abuses recorded are associated with the electoral process. Armed groups operating in the volatile eastern part of the DRC are responsible for more than 700 deaths. More from UNJHRO's director and representative in the DRC, Jose Maria Aranas. The Joint Human Rights Office has documented a dramatic increase in human rights violations in the territory of the Democratic Republic of the Congo amounting of a 30% increase compared to 2015. The state actors, including the police, the army, and the security services, are responsible for the majority of these abuses. And the armed groups have committed 36% of the violations. More than 1,000 civilians were killed in the provinces in conflict more than 348 victims of sexual violence in the provinces in conflict, and we documented over 1,102 violations of political rights and freedoms related to the electoral process, which show a steady shrinking pace of the democratic space in the DRC. What has been done to reverse this trend? Let's start with the election violence. With regards to the political violence related to the political tensions and to the upcoming electoral process, the mission has had a reposturing of its assets, concentrating in the areas, in the urban areas where political tensions are likely to occur, like in Sasa, Lubumbashi, and Goma, with reinforcement of the military, police, and human rights presence, uh, also a stronger advocacy with regards to the national actors, both the state actors, other politicians. The international community is very worried about this increased trend, and in fact, the Security Council expanded the mandate of the group of experts to name perpetrators of electoral or political violence to the sanctions committee, and as a matter of fact, a number of security officials have been sanctioned by the United States and the European Union for their participation in political violence. The mission has adopted a pretty strong advocacy and prevention role with 
with the rebalancing of the assets that used to be and staff that used to be concentrated in the East up until the beginning of, of last year and with an aim to prevent uh, some of these violations. What have been the recommendations of your office in light of your recent findings? We've been quite persistent with a message that the gear has to be changed, the trend has to be reversed if the electoral process is to be credible. And that requires, among other things, allow for peaceful demonstrations for opposition and the ruling party alike, for allow for the media to broadcast and enable full freedom of expression, association and assembly after seeing the Congolese constitution, also to stop the instrumentalization of the judiciary and to bring the perpetrators of human rights abuses to justice. All that combined with the release of political prisoners are at the center of the confidence-building measures that were negotiated between the government and the opposition with the mediation of the Catholic Church in the 31st December Agreement. That was Jose Maria Aranaz, Director and Representative of the United Nations Joint Human Rights Office in the DRC, speaking to UN Radio's Jocelyn Sambira. Now let's go back in time to today in 1998. President Bill Clinton forcefully denied having an affair with a former White House intern, Monica Lewinsky. That was today in history in the year 1998. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzaka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.15 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802. A United Rather, the attack on the Dayaks Hotel in the Somali capital of Magadishu on Wednesday has been described by the UN there as a desperate attempt by al-Shabaab extremists to disrupt the electoral process. Joseph Contreras, the spokesperson for the UN Assistance Mission in Somalia, UNSOM, said the terrorist group's continual resort to violent tactics is a sign of weakness. At least 28 people were killed and dozens were injured in the attack. Meanwhile, Somali officials announced earlier that presidential elections will be held on the 8th of February. Contreras spoke on the line from Mogadishu to Justin Sambira. Well, about today's blast, I would point out that first responders arrived at the hotel that was targeted by the attack uh, quite quickly and brought the situation under control. Again, it shows al-Shabaab's desperation in its efforts to disrupt this electoral process 
and it is a sign of weakness, we think, their continued resort to violent tactics that are rejected by the vast majority of Somali citizens, some of whom were the attackers themselves, some of whom were Somali soldiers, and perhaps about half of those being civilians. And uh, dozens were injured, including at least five journalists. In the hotel, reportedly, there were members of parliament. It is a hotel that's frequented by members of parliament who are based outside the Somali capital and stay at the hotel during visits to Mogadishu. I'm not aware that any lawmaker has been confirmed among the dead. Would we say it's sort of a setback in terms of the security situation there? Well, it's certainly a source of concern for all key stakeholders involved in the 2016 electoral process. There has been a bit of an increase in attacks in Mogadishu since the new year began. I can recall offhand about three attacks that have taken place thus far in January prior to today's explosion. I think this, once again, shows the desperation of violent extremists to derail the electoral process. Uh, Throughout the electoral process, there was not a single instance of the actual voting being sabotaged by the likes of al-Shabaab. So I think it has to be seen in that perspective, desperate attempt by violent extremists to derail the electoral process as it enters its very final stage. But this attack will in no way deter Somalia from completing this electoral process. There's been a new report that the Somali government has finally issued a date for the elections, which is February 8th. Has this been confirmed? Uh, That's what we're hearing as well. Uh, An ad hoc committee that was established by the newly inaugurated federal parliament has announced February 8th as the date for a presidential vote in both houses of that parliament. Registration of candidates for that balloting is scheduled for the 27th and 28th of January. There will be a day of debate um, and two days of speeches by presidential aspirants. But yes, February 8th is the date that apparently has been settled on for the presidential election. That was Joseph Contreras, the spokesperson for the UN Assistance Mission in Somalia, Unsom, speaking there to Jocelyn Sambira. The Executive Council of the African Union has begun its three-day meeting to deliberate on the agenda for the 28th African Union Summit. The Foreign Affairs Ministers of the Continent are meeting at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Koleta Wanjohi has more. The year 2017 is recognized by the African Union as the year of harnessing demographic dividend through investment of the youth. At the opening of the meeting of the Executive Council of the African Union at the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, the chairperson of the commission, Dr. Nkosa Zanadlamini Zuma, has highlighted the fact that Africa must plan how to approach the global challenges being faced in the world now. The world feels more insecure as violent extremists of all kinds 
acts of terrorism and international crime impact on all our security with no country that is exempt. This is coupled with large movements of people across the world as conflicts, economic insecurity and climate change takes its toll. Dlamini Zuma adds that this call for clear ways of using the continent's Agenda 2063 to survive politically, socially and economically. First and foremost, it requires that we revive and strengthen the spirit of Pan-Africanism, unity and solidarity. It means we have to guard our unity jealously and not to allow ourselves to be divided or diverted from our agenda. Above all, it necessitates, as our DCP said the other day, passion, commitment and dedicated to our integration and development agenda in particular. The acting executive secretary for the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa, Abdallah Hamdok, says Africa's development and structural transformation agenda will be highly affected by what he calls fragmented globalization. As a result of this trend, we could be witnessing slowing down or fracturing of globalization. From a political economy perspective, we may experience a loss of momentum towards negotiating development friendly trade agreements. In part, this is manifested in the deadlock of the multilateral trade negotiations in the World Trade Organization. Currently, a compromise appears nearly impossible over developed uh, countries' agricultural subsidies. The African Union heads of state will begin their deliberation on 30th of January. Coletta Njoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Let's go back in time to today in 2005. Condoleezza Rice was sworn in as U.S. Secretary of State following her confirmation by the Senate. Rice was, Rice was the first black woman to become Secretary of State. That was today in history in the year 2005. We have great news for you. Channel Africa has gone mobile. If you have a cell phone, you can now download the mobile app for Android. You can get it on Google Play. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The African Union Commission has paid tribute to African National Congress stalwart Winnie Madigizela Mandel. This is for her excellence and selfless sacrifice and providing inspiration to others. Women from different organizations gathered in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to honor her as a continental and global icon. Amos Pajo has more. The fact that Winnie Mandela could not attend the gala dinner to honor the continent's heroines did nothing to dampen the excitement of those in attendance at the mention of her name. There was tremendous cheering and ululating, as well as songs sung in her name. Her granddaughter, Gandhi Bai, accepted the honor on her behalf. I'd like to thank you for this honor and recognition for her contribution to a better society. 
her commitment to ensure that today we all have a voice, male and female, her relentless fight for equality and justice, her ability to use her life as an inspiration and as an example to all women and girls that yes, it is possible. Possible to challenge systems of male dominance created on an agenda of racial and male supremacy that seek to oppress, exploit, and objectify. And through all of that conflict, resistance, struggle, and determination, she still stands, she still rises. She rises and stands tall with nothing but style and grace. Madigizela Mandela recently celebrated her 80th birthday with well-wishers from all over the world and now the AU Commission found it fitting to honor her recalling her role in the dark days of apartheid and during South Africa's liberation struggle. ANC Women's League President and South Africa's Social Development Minister Batabile Tlamini described Mamawini as a pillar of strength and an inspiration to many women. We are very proud of what we have done and South African women stand tall, more particularly because of the role that Mamwini and other struggling veterans and our other forebears, because of the role they played. Mamwini is an African woman and she has never been afraid of saying she is an African woman. The outgoing AU Commission Chairperson Dr. Ngoso Zanadlamini Zuma was also honored for the work she has done during her term of office. Despite being the first woman to lead the institution, Lamini Zuma has also championed the adoption of Agenda 2063, which is a blueprint of Africa's developmental program over the next 50 years. I always say a leader is as good as his or her team because there is nothing you can do alone. And in these jobs, most of the work is delegated. So I must thank the commissioners, thank the directors, thank the people in my office, all the members of staff at the AU. Lamini Zuma is to remain at the helm until the election of her successor next week. I'm Amos Paro in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It's 27 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Thousands of New Yorkers rallied in the city's Washington Square Park against several policy initiatives of President Donald Trump. Earlier on Wednesday, the president signed two executive orders aimed at curbing illegal immigration immigration by redirecting federal dollars towards building a border wall with Mexico and eliminating federal funding to so-called sanctuary cities that protect undocumented immigrants who may have violated federal law but now live legally and pay taxes in those cities. President Trump is also expected to sign further orders temporarily barring refugees from the country while blocking visas to several Middle Eastern and African countries over terrorism concerns. Sean Bryce-Pease reports. Another day, another executive order. As the president makes good on campaign promises, that have proved controversial from day one. His press secretary, Sean Spicer. The American people are no longer going to have to be forced to subsidize this disregard for our laws. Reforming our immigration system has been at the top of President Trump's priority since he announced his candidacy. 
action that brought thousands onto the streets of New York in protest as the resistance to President Trump's policy initiatives continue to grow nationwide. Letitia James is the New York City public advocate. This is the struggle of all Americans. We've got to join hands and protect the marginalized community and vulnerable communities just as we protected African Americans in the 60s. We've got to protect those who they're coming after. We've got to stand with them and rise with them and let them know that this is the America that we love and we'll fight for it. The city comptroller, Scott Stringer, said they were fighting for human rights and for social justice. Immigrants earn $100 billion a year in the city. That's billions of dollars in taxes. Immigrants own 83,000 businesses in New York City. Yes, small stores and restaurants, but here's what's great. 44% of immigrants are in finance. 50% are in medicine. 54% is in entertainment. Donald Trump, you idiot! Don't you understand Economics 101? You're an idiot! Iran is among seven countries that include Syria, Iraq, Yemen, Sudan, Somalia and Libya that will be barred from obtaining visas under executive order expected to be signed imminently. Bahman Kalbasi is an Iranian-born journalist who works for the BBC's Persian service. There is a sizable Iranian-American community who has many members of their families visit, they go back and forth. So the idea that they could be temporarily or permanently as part of this text allows a ban on them applying for any kind of visa it has come as a massive shock to the community and it's really shaken a lot of people inside Iran wondering how much worse this can get. As thousands rallied yet again against a president and his policies, many here feel are out of step with the global mainstream on issues of immigration climate change and women's rights. I'm a Muslim. My family's from Guinea and West Africa and I believe that I'm here because I just want to stand for my people, stand for people who look like me, who are just like me, who share my beliefs. And the fact that Donald Trump is just isolating us and putting us in a certain bubble to prevent us from coming into this country, I believe it's xenophobic, I believe it's unconstitutional and it's not it's not correct. What do you what do you hope? You know a lot of people ask us what's the point of these protests, right? He's been elected. What do you really think this is going to achieve? I mean, I think it speaks to the legislators and like the senators and the representatives and lets them know that at least in New York we're not going to stand for this and that we want them to support us. I think it brings people together in solidarity and encourages further activism. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio has threatened to take the Trump administration to court if federal funds are withheld over the city's sanctuary status. Further executive actions could be signed as early as Thursday. I'm Sherwin Bricepies in New York. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. In the headlines, President Adama Barros to return to the Gambia on Thursday, accompanied by head of the UN Office for West Africa and the Sahel, Mohammed Ibn Chambas. 
Forces loyal to Libyan Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar battling jihadists around the second city Benghazi have retaken one of the last remaining strongholds of the militants. And President Donald Trump have ordered work to begin on building a wall across the Mexican border with the United States. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. Let's go back in time to today in 1952. Egypt was placed under martial law in response to widespread riots against the British. That was today in history in the year 1952. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, reveille-toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. Weya, wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibwanji. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.33 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A more private investment alongside public funding will provide a better future for rural people. That's one of the key ideas behind a two-day conference taking place in Rome dedicated to rural economic development. The international meeting under the theme Investing in Inclusive Rural Transformation, Innovative Approaches to Financing is geared towards realizing the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals by better supporting smallholder farmers across the world. More from IFAD's Director of Global Engagement, Ashwani Mutu. We want to use this conference as a platform to highlight the importance of greater investments, not only by the public sector, but especially finding ways and means to bring on board the private sector, foundations and other philanthropic organizations so that they can also be part of the transformation process and invest in rural transformation. So what we really want to achieve is to see how we can get the private sector on board so that they can be involved much more comprehensively, especially in remote rural areas where the risks are much higher for them. In the conference, we're also going to discuss innovative instruments for financing so that organizations like IFAD and other multilaterals and bilaterals, how can they finance smallholder and smallholder medium enterprises at the grassroots level? So why have this conference now and what role can the UN play overall in helping this very vulnerable sector of the world's poor and food insecure? Well, there are at least two reasons why the timing of this conference is fundamental. Firstly, we have Agenda 2030 ahead of us. And leaving this kind of discussion any later, any further down the road, would compromise the possibility of us achieving Agenda 20 objectives and the Sustainable Development Goals. So it is really time for action. Secondly, we have a special opportunity, given that we're based in Rome, our headquarters is in Rome, together with our partners, FAO and WFP, we have an opportunity also to engage in the G7 process because the G7 process in 2017 will be under the Italian presidency. So this conference is also going to provide an opportunity to give inputs to the discussions that will take place 
within the context of the G7. And in the G7, there's a major, major track on food security and agriculture. So we're actually working together with the authorities, Italian authorities here, to make sure that the issue of investments and financing is prominently featured in the G7 outcome declarations. Is it a bit optimistic to talk about rural transformation? I mean, it, it's going to require, in, in I think IFAD's own words, enormous investment, isn't it? Absolutely. That's why we know that public investment is not going to be enough. That's where the private sector has a major role. But also others, especially these very large foundations as our partners like Gates Foundation, Rockefeller and many others, including in developing countries. What about the role of women? I mean, do women farmers have a particular role to play in this hope-for transformation? Women farmers are critical. We have data which shows that majority or a large number of labor in the, in the farmlands are women. They have an important role to play, whether it's in the production cycle, whether it's in processing or whether it's in marketing. So IFAD as an organization and the UN as a whole in general, but IFAD in particular devotes special attention to the transformation and empowerment of women. And how do you persuade more affluent city dwellers, if you like, to help support or care about the rural poor in, in their own countries or regions? Ah, that's another interesting question, you know, and I'd like to link up here with a major conference, UN conference that took place in Quito, Ecuador in October, the Habitat 3. We were very much at the forefront of that, highlighting the rural-urban nexus, that in order to have sustainable cities, you cannot forget rural areas. So it is through this advocacy and policy work at the highest level can we sensitize communities in the cities to also pay attention to rural areas. There's the issue of migration, rural-urban migration. So by making farming, by making rural areas more generally generally attractive will also ensure that we achieve sustainable cities. And finally, I mean, how will you judge the success of this conference? What are you looking for in terms of an outcome? One of the concrete outcomes is the launching of what we call the Smallholder Agriculture Finance and Investment Network, SAFIN. So we, th- this SAFIN is fundamental. It's a critical response of IFAD and other partners interested partners to do something together in a coordinated manner to achieve the objectives of Agenda 2030. So it's a network of number of organizations uh, that we want to launch. We, want, we don't want to launch. We want to announce the establishment of the SAFIN at the conference, we and other partners who will be present at the conference. Uh, and this SAFIN will basically be responsible for undertaking a number of initiatives in the, in the area of smallholder agriculture. It could be policy work, it could be financing, it could be research and analytic work in order to further the objective of Agenda 2030. That was Ashwani Mutu, International Fund for Agricultural Development Director of Global Engagement, speaking to UN Radio's Matthew Wells. It's 8.39 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now let's go back in time to today in 1887. Ethiopian army defeats the invading Italians. At this time, Ethiopians had the most well-equipped standing army on the African continent. That was Today in History in the year 1887. Africa, rise and shine.
The Kenyan government has started plans to fight food insecurity facing several parts of the country since July last year. This comes after the government said that it's planning to import maize to cater for at least 2 million people who are facing drought and starvation. Diana Wanyoni reports from Mombasa. Speaking in Mombasa's Port Harbour on Monday while receiving 27,000 tons of subsidized planting fertilizer from Saudi Arabia, Kenya's Agriculture Cabinet Secretary Willie Bet said the fertilizer will be sold cheaply to farmers all over the country. At some point in time, the cost of one bag of fertilizer had gone up to Kenya shilling 6,000. But when government came up with this subsidy program, we have also seen the general price of fertilizer in the country come down. The subsidized fertilizer will still fetch 1,800 Kenya shillings per pack. The commercial fertilizer is in the range of 3,100-3,200. As much as the government remains optimistic that the fertilizer will help farmers during the rainy season, which is expected in March, several parts of the country have been hit by drought and starvation since August last year. In the coastal region, three counties, namely Kwale, Tana River and Kilifi, has been affected severely due to inadequate rainfall. In different areas of Kilifi County, for instance, residents are relying on relief food from the government and food donations from oil wishers. In the Mariango area of Kilifi, 80 kilometers from Mombasa, where the situation is dire, Happy Chinyavu is a vegetable seller. The mother of five children usually walks a distance of 10 kilometers to buy her commodities to sell to the people. She elaborates more on the effects of drought and famine they encounter. There is a lot of famine over here. Our children usually take porridge or ugali in the morning and they will wait for the second meal in the evening. Because if you say you eat the meal as an adult, children will suffer. We don't have food and there's no water too. And that is why you see me buying and selling vegetables so as to sustain my family. We also walk for a long distance in search of water in which we also sell so as to get money. Chinyavu is a true example of what women and children go through when faced with the famine and drought. Due to such cases, the government has continued to set aside money that will ensure that farmers who have been affected by the drought will have access to the subsidized fertilizer. Here again is Agriculture Cabinet Secretary Willie Bet. We are facing a drought in the country, something which our early warning systems indicated way back, actually late October, early November. And the government immediately swung into action and uh, developed a plan on how to handle the drought in the event it happens. Because at that time, we were reacting on early warning systems. The government approved a budget to handle uh, the situation uh, uh, when it unfolds. And um, during that time, we divided the interventions in three stages. The first stage was the first three months, November, December, January, where the government put in 5.4 billion Kenya shillings to handle any eventuality. Phase two intervention, February, March, and April, where we put in 9 billion Kenya shillings to handle the intervention. And then a stage three, that is May, June, July, where we put in 7 billion Kenya shillings. In total, we provided for 21 billion Kenya shillings to handle the occurrence of the drought. 
He added that the government has started plans to import maize from foreign countries. He blames some of the farmers and businessmen for hiding maize so they can sell it at larger prices to the public. We are seeing the price of maize now going up, which is pushing up the price of flour. If the situation continues, by end of this week, we will make a decision whether to import maize in this country. Part of the reason is that we don't believe we don't have enough maize because we've just came out of a harvest season. I even went to the maize growing areas. The information is that a lot of farmers and the businessmen are holding the commodity. But then if you don't want to offload it, then we can't force you. What we are going to do is to import maize. Looking at the situation now, we will import it and um, you will burn your fingers if you are holding uh, maize now because the kind of importation we're doing it will have to be done to the free. That was Willie Bet, Agriculture Cabinet Secretary, and I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. And I'm Tabi Solohogo with an economics update. Good morning. Experts say Africa, famously short of new roads, ports and power stations, is increasingly leaning on its own sovereign investment funds to help fix its infrastructure gap. The funds, which have around 150 billion US dollars between them, according to research firm Prekin, are digging in themselves and offering co-investment opportunities and guarantees to attract foreign capital. According to a panel discussion at last week's World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, the scale of the problem is huge, with some 600 million Africans, or half the continent's population, still lacking reliable power. General Electric Corporation has proposed investing in Nigeria's oil refineries, potentially convening a consortium of companies to improve capacity at the rundown facilities. GE's plan and similar promises from commercial companies like Italy's Eni to work with Nigeria to rehabilitate the country's three oil refineries could help the government as it tries to reduce costly imported oil products. The work was raised during a meeting with the Nigerian Petroleum Corporation. The Kenyan government has started plans to fight food security, insecurity rather, facing several parts of the country since July last year. This comes after government said it was planning to import maize to cater for at least 2 million people who are facing drought and starvation. Diana Wanyonyi reports from Kenya's coastal town of Mombasa. Speaking in Mombasa's Port Harbour on Monday while receiving 27,000 tons of subsidized planting fertilizer from Saudi Arabia, Kenya's Agriculture Cabinet Secretary Willie Bet said the fertilizer will be sold cheaply to farmers all over the country. Kia Motors says it is drawing up a contingency plan to cope with the policies of U.S. President Donald Trump reflecting growing uh, worriness by Asian exporters about the prospect of U.S. protectionism. Trump has promised to revive U.S. industrial jobs by forcing automakers to stop making cars in Mexico, threatening to tax imports and promising to make it more attractive for businesses to operate in the United States. South Korea-based Kia Motors last year started production at a new plant in Nueva Leon, Mexico, while sister firm Hyundai Motor will begin making cars at Kia's Mexico plant this year.
Oil prices have risen, driven up by a weakening U.S. dollar. Brent crude futures as the international benchmark for oil prices are trading at $55.95 per barrel. Traders say the increase is largely down to a weakening dollar, which has lost 3.9% in value since the January peak. Indicators at the Sawa on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance is spreading across this African continent. The US dollar trades at 13.31 in South Africa, 10.37 in Botswana, 9.80 in Zambia, 7.9 British pound, 9.3 euro gold, $1,198, platinum, $980 an ounce, brand crude, $55.55 cents a barrel. So, Figile, Sri Lanka showed the Proteas some flames last Boy, minute. They, what they, happened? What went wrong? No, they had to. They, they had to, to, to win, you know. This is embarrassing for a team to visit and then it, it gets all the whitewash throughout, you know. I think this had to happen. But now, this was like to take a breather from the Proteas, so to speak. They're, they're starting the one-day international now. So, you'll see what's going to happen. Okay, I'm not going to hold my breath. Give us an update. Enough sports update this hour. We saving off with tennis news. U.S. tennis star Venus Williams drew on the experience of 73 Grand Slam campaigns to come from a set down for a 6-7, 3, 6-2, and 6-3 victory over fellow American Coco Van de Wee. The 36-year-old sealed the win when Van de Wee went long after 146 minutes on Rod Laver Arena to reach her second Melbourne Park final. 14 years after she lost his first to Serena in 2003. Williams paying tribute to her opponent says this victory means a lot to her. It means so much, mostly because she played so well. I mean... <sighs> she played so unbelievable and I, I, I had to play defense the whole time, it felt like. And, you know, when you're playing against a player and, you, you know, it, it's easier work, then you feel like, oh, my gosh. But here she played so well, and there was never a moment of, of relaxation ever. So to, to be able to get to the final through a match like this, I'm just I'm excited about American tennis as well. About what went through her mind in the last game, William says she had to spare herself up. I was like, oh my God, Venus, come on, this match point. You're supposed to win this one. <laughs> but I have to give her credit for the courage that she had on this match point. She never stopped swinging. And I don't even remember what happened on the last one. I just know that now the match is over. And your group up there, and the people that are not here, your parents that are not here, your mom and dad, they're back in the States, but your sister's up there, and, and David Witt, your longtime coach, what does it mean for you, for them? I mean, we work hard. Everyone on this tour works hard. And, you know, everyone has their moment in the sun. Maybe mine has gone on a while, but um, I'd like to keep that going. I got nothing. I got nothing else to do, so let's keep it going. (laughs)
Okay, so now that you've gone through the torture of uh, having to get through that match and deal with the stress, now you have to watch the next match, which incredibly your little sister at 35 years of age is in, in another semi. Are you going to sit back and watch it? It's an unbelievable thing to watch Serena Williams play tennis, I have to say. That girl is, she can hit the ball, she's such a competitor. It's unbelievable, so I would love to be out here and I would more than anything love to see her cross the net for me on Saturday. Mohamed Salah blasted home a free kick to give Egypt a 1-0 win over Ghana and top place in Africa Cup of Nations Group D as the first round of matches ended on Wednesday. Salah's rasping 10th-minute strike sent Egypt to the head of the standings with seven points and Ghana, who won their first two games, finished second on six. Egypt will play Morocco in the quarterfinals in Port Gentil on Sunday, while Ghana travelled to Oyem to face the Democratic Republic of Congo on the same day. Other Group D opponents, Uganda and Mali, crashed out of the tournament after playing to a one-all draw. And in cricket news, Proteas batsman A.B. Devilla's sparkling half-century could not prevent Sri Lanka from snatching a five-wicket victory with one ball to spare as they capitalized on six dropped catches by South Africa in the third 2020 last night. Niroshan Dikwela belted a career-best 68 from 51 balls and an unbeaten 37 of just 16 balls from Sivkuge Prasana helped Sri Lanka to claim a 2-1 series victory as South Africa's victory hopes were dashed by the woeful fielding. The hosts, resting a number of their leading players, posted 169 for 5 in 20 overs after winning the toss and electing to bet. South Africa's innings was anchored by a fine 63 of 44 balls from De Villas, who warmed to his task after a slow start as he returned from seven months on the sidelines with an elbow injury. The teams will start a five-match one-day series in Port Elizabeth on Saturday. And finally, South Africa's top-ranked Leanne Pace starts her def- title defense in the SA Women's Open at St. Lamier Country Club in Devon today. Pace, speaking to Lali Stander, says she performs better when she is under pressure. It's in the back of my mind, I'm not going to lie, um, but I kind of like that pressure. I, I think I perform better under it, so I've been thinking about this tournament for a while. I'm really excited to play. A couple of niggles last week that you've been working out. Are you happy with where it's going? <laughs> I did switch putters, yes. <laughs> I didn't putt well, especially the last day. Uh, but, you know, Carrie played amazing golf, so uh, she definitely deserved to win as well. And this golf course, key, key to success here? Being straight, I reckon. And, uh, yeah, just, just making a few putts. But I think if you can keep it in the fairway, hit the greens, it's very important. Pro-am day today, so a chance to see the golf course and get a feel for it and have some fun. Yeah, exactly. I'm excited to meet my prime partners. It's always fun to meet new people. And I hear we have a golf buggy, so that's great. And that's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Gambia's new president Adama Barrow is set to return home today. Al-Shabaab attack kills at least 28 people in Mogadishu and concerns over increasing human rights violations in the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutura Magadza and Komuto Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. I'm taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Tiwa Savage with a song titled If I Start to Talk. No be say them say No need to like say you no know No be say them say My brother Oh ya Joe for me I do pay for one And my one is okay I do pay for one Oh ya Komole I do pay for one Like a Jones okay brother, If, if I, I start to talk Them they complain, make you know, forget, say, Baba God day. Every day, yes, a good day. Holiday from Monday to Sunday. Oh, yeah, come on, oh, yeah, it's okay. Oh, yeah, but I was sure them problem no day. See my life today, blessings every day. And they shine so bright. Did they make them, they wonder why we they so composed. Anything we do, we they in control. Anywhere we go, they, they won't follow. And anything we touch, we they turn to go. Oh, yeah, joke for me. I do pay for one. And my is okay. I do pay for one. Oh, yeah, go more. I do pay for one. Like a chance, okay. I'm not going